If you would, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis 14. Genesis chapter 14, as we continue to work our way through this first book of the Bible. And as you make your way there, I would like to just stop again for a moment and commit this time to the Lord. So let's pray. Lord, uh, today and for all eternity, we confess that our hope is in Christ alone. Lord, that is the truth that reigns supreme here today. And so, Lord, as we sit under your word now in these moments, would you speak to us? Uh, Would we be changed, Lord, by the power of your word before us, your spirit within us? Have your way, Lord. Uh, We rest in the promises of your word, that your word does not return void when it goes forth. Lord, help us to focus our attention and our affection and our desires on who you are and how you are speaking from these uh, words and verses in this chapter from Genesis this morning. Lord, would you move distractions from this place, reign supreme in these moments, we pray. Amen. Genesis is a unique book in the fact that many of the themes and truths that we find throughout the pages of Scripture are introduced to us here in this first book. This sermon series has been titled Foundations of the Faith, and that has been very intentional because so much of what we believe, the foundations of the Christian faith, we find here in the pages of Genesis. And so what is exciting when you read through Genesis from front to back um, when, we, when you read through the Bible from cover to cover even, from Genesis to Revelation, is as you walk through Genesis, slowly and gradually, more and more of the themes of Scripture are revealed to us. We've seen so many of those so far in the first 13 chapters. But here this morning, in Genesis chapter 14, we're introduced to a theme for the first time that runs throughout the pages of Scripture this theme, this truth that the battle belongs to the Lord. That phrase is very simplistic in its nature, but the meaning of the phrase is very profound. Unfortunately, we live in a day where that phrase has been mishandled and misused. You see athletes, before they run out onto the field of play, writing this phrase on their shoes. Uh, The prosperity preachers of our day will use this verse to say that if you just have enough faith, you will be victorious in all areas of life. You will be blessed with health and wealth and prosperity. But at the heart of this phrase, this scriptural truth, this theme that we come to in Genesis 14 is something far more profound than an athlete trying to achieve a prize on a field of grass. This theme, the battle belongs to the Lord, is one, again, that we see throughout the pages of Scripture. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is made ready for the battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 33.17, The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Isaiah 31.1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, 
who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. In this truth, the battle belongs to the Lord. There is a twofold meaning here. First and foremost, God is sovereign over all things. On the battlefield, he is the one who brings victory to the winning army. But also here we see a call to the people of God to not put their trust in horses. Horses that are prepared for battle. To not put their trust in things that are of this world. To not put their trust and their hope and their faith in things that are fleeting. But to put their trust alone in Yahweh. The battle belongs to him alone. I want us to see this truth here in Genesis chapter 14. If you'll begin with me in verse 1 of Genesis 14. It says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elassar, Kedorlamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shimaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlamer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Imim in Shava Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedorlamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. These first ten verses of chapter 14 sound something more like a Tolkien novel. It sounds like something from the Lord of the Rings, these five kings versus the four kings of the, of the east. What is happening here in these first 10 verses, and why is it significant to us today? Well, let's just recap for a moment what we see here. We have these five kings of the Jordan Valley. And if you remember, two weeks ago in Genesis 13, we saw Lot settle in the Jordan Valley. When he looked on the Jordan Valley, he saw that it was well watered, and he decided to settle there. And so there are these five kings that reside in the Jordan Valley, and they have been serving for 12 years. This one, Kedorlamer, the king of Elam, along with his three allies, his three companions. These four kings live in the east. They live in the region of Babylon. And so for 12 years, the kings of the Jordan Valley have been paying tribute to, sending tribute to Kedorlamer and these other three kings in the east. They were sending money. They were sending produce. They were sending parts of the harvest to these kings. But in the 13th year, the text tells us, they decided to rebel. So they stopped sending their tribute to Kedorlamer and these others. And so in year 14, Kedorlamer and these three companion kings of him decide to head west to subjugate these five kings who have rebelled against them. 
So they come from the northeast and they travel down the eastern side of the Jordan Valley. And on their way, they go on this great campaign of taking over all of the areas and regions that they come to. So they first travel down from the northeast and defeat the Rephaim and the Zuzim, the Emim and the Horites. They come down to the southern part of the Jordan Valley and they turn west and then northward and they take on the Amalekites and the Amorites and they find success. They plunder these nations. They take their possessions. And then finally the great showdown happens there with the five kings who have rebelled against them. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela. These four kings under the rule of Kedorlamer fight the five kings of the Jordan Valley and they defeat them. It is a rout. And so these kings of the Jordan Valley flee. Some of them fall into the bitumen pits and some of their people are able to escape into the wilderness. We come to another first here in the Bible. This is really the first major battle, the first major war that we see in the story of the Old Testament. But it is the first of many wars and battles that we see. Nation rising against nation. King rising against king. And in the midst of all of this, all of these interworkings of the nations, God's people, God's covenant people find themselves in the midst of it. Oftentimes they are the instigators of the war. Oftentimes they are the recipients of an attack. But over and over and over again, we see the people of God impacted by the nations raging around them. And so for the original audience, the original Israelite audience who read this, they would have been reminded that when battles face and when when they face battles and wars come to them, that they are to trust in the Lord. But these ancient wars, these physical wars, these earthly wars that happened thousands of years ago today, for us as the New Testament church, serve to remind us of the spiritual war that we are in. Dear church, we do not fight physical wars as the church in the New Testament, as as these kings did in their day, but rather our war is against spiritual forces. It is against a spiritual foe. This text reminds us of that today. We're in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul said, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, or against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There in Ephesians chapter 6, the very next thing that Paul says to the church is to put on the full armor of God. The book of Ephesians is laden with war-type language, war-type imagery. Paul is charging the church in Ephesus and us this morning to be mindful of the fact that we are at war. We as Christians and in our homes and as the church are under a constant threat of foreign kings looking to take over our lives and have dominion over us. But the foreign kings in our day are not guys with names that are hard to pronounce. The foreign kings in our day is is the culture. It is the ideologies of men. It is Satan's kingdom. And church, if we do not start living the Christian life as if we are at war, we will continue to crumble under the weight of the culture, under the weight of of the ideologies of men under the weight of Satan's kingdom. The reason the church in our day looks so much like the world is because we have forgotten that we are at war. 
The church desires to be more of a friend of the enemy than to do battle with the enemy. The reason sin runs so rampant in our homes and in our churches and the reason why week in and week out another pastor falls because of sexual immorality is because we have invited the enemy into our homes and he dines at our table. We're being shaped by the enemy. The enemy is discipling us. The enemy is teaching us. The enemy is shaping our worldview. We are being indoctrinated by soundbite theology on social media instead of resting in the word of God. Dear church, we are supposed to look like Jesus. We are not supposed to look like the world. We are at war, dear friends. And so the call here is then that we as the church would submit to Christ alone, that we would trust him and obey him the story continues there in verse 11, if, if you'll read along with me. It says, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Anir. These were allies of Abram. So these four kings from the east, as they go on this long journey of conquest, they defeat the kings of the Jordan Valley and they take all of their possessions. And this is where the conflict arises in the text. Lot, again, becomes a source of trouble in the story. Lot is dwelling there in the city of Sodom and he is taken away by these four kings along with all of his possessions. And so Abram, again, is forced to intervene on behalf of his nephew. Notice here something that's very interesting about what the writer says where Lot is living. Look there at verse 12. It says that Lot was dwelling in Sodom. If you remember back two weeks ago in chapter 13, verse 12, when it talked about where Lot resided, it said that he moved his tent as far as Sodom. The literal translation there means he was tenting next to the writer here is communicating in these, this, this different formation of the words to tell us where, where Lot is living to show us that Lot has bought into the sin of Sodom. Remember what it said about Sodom last time in, in chapter 13? The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And for the original audience and for us this morning who are students of the word of God, we know where the story is going we know what is significant about Sodom and where does Lot find himself dwelling amongst this city of people who are sinful and rebellious against a holy God. And so he is dwelling there among sin. He is dwelling inside the four walls of Sodom. He's decided to bring himself into the city. Potentially, if Lot had not been dwelling in Sodom, this sin-filled city, maybe he would have been spared from the conflict. But what we definitely see here is because he lived in this sin-filled city, he was caught up in the consequences of the sin that he was comfortable to live in the midst of. Church, when we surround ourselves with sin we will suffer the consequences of our sin. 
when we play with sin and when we live in close proximity to sin and when we allow sin to thrive in our lives and in our homes, we should not be surprised to be caught up in the swift consequences of that sin. We're reminded here not to compromise on sin, that we are to not be lazy with sin, that we cannot expect sin to go unpunished or unknown. We should not be content as Christ's bride to live inside the four walls of Sodom. Now, obviously, we live in a city that is sin-filled. We live in neighborhoods surrounded by sinful people. We live in a country, in a world that is full of sin. But we are to guard our homes and our minds and our hearts and our church from sin. We are to be set apart from this world for Christ. We cannot be complacent. We cannot sit by idly and allow sin to creep in to our homes and into the church. Lot was content to live inside the walls of Sodom. And so he gets swept away in the midst of this conflict. And word comes to Abram, who, interestingly, in verse 13, we're told, is still living by the oaks of Mamre. So if you remember, the last time we're told where Abram is at the end of chapter 13, we're told the very same thing. He was settled by the oaks of Mamre. So again, here the writer is is showing us this, this contrast between the one who walks by faith, Abram, and the one who walks by sight, Lot, who's dwelling in the city of sin. Abram is there. He's surrounded by these companions, Mamre and his two brothers, And we pick up the story there in verse 14. It says, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Again, Abram must come to the aid of his kinsmen. Again, Lot is the source of trouble, and Abram has to intervene on behalf to deliver his nephew. And so the text tells us that Abram joins with 318 of his best men. Later, at the end of the chapter, we come to see that he also joined forces with his allies in honor, Eskel and Mamre. And he pursues Cadorlamer and his forces, and they in this shrewd attack in the evening, overcome them. They terrify them. They defeat them. And it says that they pursued them even further north. They forced them out of the land. And because of this, the text tells us that Abram takes on all of their possessions, all of their spoils of war, but most importantly, he frees Lot and his possessions and the women and the people who were with him. So we pick up the story then in verse 17. It says, After his return from the defeat of Cadorlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram comes out of this great victory that he has had over these four eastern Babylonian kings. And he's met first by the king of Sodom. We're not told much about the king of Sodom. In fact, we don't 
really know anything about the king of Sodom other than the fact that he is the king of a really sinful city that in a few chapters is going to be destroyed by God because of its sin. And so we can assume that the king of Sodom is a wicked, evil man. He is not a God-fearer. But then we're introduced to another king, a king that has not been mentioned in this list of kings so far in chapter 14. That is Melchizedek, the king of Salem, or the king of righteousness. And the text tells us that he brings refreshments to Abram as he comes out of this great battle that he's been victorious in, and he gives him refreshment of bread and of wine. There's also an important detail here about Melchizedek. He's not only the king of Salem, but the end of verse 18 tells us he was the priest of God most high. Later in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, we will come to know the significance of Melchizedek being a priest of God most high. There in Hebrews 7, the writer tells us that Jesus is the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus is able to make atonement for sins as the great high priest because he is of the line of Melchizedek. Why is this important? Well, if you know of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi was the one that was marked as the tribe of the Levites, the tribe of the priest. Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. And so his priestly order, his great high priest, comes through Melchizedek. We come to see the significance of this later in the New Testament. But here, Melchizedek, this king of Salem, this priest of God most high, he blesses Abram. Notice what he says here in the blessing. He blesses Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. His confession, his statement of faith, if you will, is that there is one true God and he is the creator and sustainer of all things, Yahweh. He blesses God most high. And then notice what he says finally in the blessing. Who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This is the heart of the passage. All of the noise so far in chapter 14 and the kings and the regions and the names of these people and the conflict with Lot and how Abram has to rise up and go rescue his nephew is all leading to this point. The heart of the passage. It was God who delivered Abram's enemies into his hands. How is it that Abram, with such a small force, was able to find success against a war-hardened enemy? The, the people that Abram defeated had just been on this long conquest of conquering and defeating, and here Abram comes with his ragtag group of guys, and they defeat them in a rout. They force them out of the nation. How is this possible? Melchizedek tells us God gave him the victory. And so Abram gives a portion of the, the spoils of war. Everything that he has there coming out of the war, he gives a tenth of it, a portion of it, to Melchizedek. Abraham here in the story represents righteousness in the land. Here we see the the chaos and the conflict of these heathen kings. We see Lot getting caught up in the conflict, and Abram is the one who is the representative of righteousness in the land. There's chaos around him, and when he intervenes, there is now peace on the scene, and he is blessed. The reason that Melchizedek blesses Abram is because Abram is the champion of righteousness. He is championing righteousness in the land. 
we as Christ's church in this day should be championing righteousness in the land. We should be champions of righteousness here in San Antonio and in Texas and to the ends of the earth. It's quite fitting that we come to this passage this morning. In God's providence, we find ourselves here today because uh, there's a debate that is ongoing in evangelical circles among brothers in Christ, dear brothers in Christ. There are, are men and women on both sides of this debate that I, I respect very dearly. And there's an agreement on we as the church should desire righteous laws and righteous rulers in our land. But the debate exists on how much should we be involved as the church in changing things like law and legislation. How engaged should we be in politics as the church? And I must be honest with you today, as your pastor, this is something I'm still struggling with and wrestling with and weighing because if I'm honest with you, in my personality and the way that God has made me and the way that my mind works, I tend to not be as concerned about what's happening in the political world. I tend to find myself more concerned about kingdom work. But in this conversation that's been happening, God has used brothers in Christ to encourage me to be more engaged in things like legislation and law. That we should, as the church, represent Christ's kingdom in this world. And so although this debate exists, I think the brothers on either side of the debate are closer than they might think. But again, the question is, how engaged should we be in the political world as Christians? How engaged should I be in legislation and law as a pastor? And so I have committed to, as, 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 a, as a new pastor here in San Antonio, coming off of the mission field to be engaged in these things intentionally. Because, again, my personality is, is not to be engaged. And one of those things that I think that we should be engaged in as the church is in abortion. And so I have committed myself Although it's not necessarily something I am comfortable with, it's not in my personality to go out with a, a group of others in San Antonio who are looking to end abortion and we go to college campuses and we engage college students on the topic. It's really easy for me to stand from this pulpit and say that abortion is evil. What are we doing about it? So I want to make sure that I am engaged. But I say all that, I preface what I'm about to say with this. We should be engaged, church, but hear this. We champion righteousness in the way God has instructed us to with his spiritual weapons. I'll say it this way. Better laws and better rulers will not change the hearts of men. Only the gospel proclaimed can bring dead souls to life. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can take a heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can take a college student at UTSA who spits in your face for telling them abortion is wrong and change their lives for eternity. Dear friends, our primary goal in championing righteousness in this world is to make Christ known. That is it. 
And in the process, if hearts, as hearts are changed, if we see righteous rules and righteous laws, to God be the glory. But that is not the end goal, dear friends. The goal of Christ's church is not to establish a Christian nation. The goal of Christ's church is to bring glory to Yahweh. The goal of Christ's church is to build his kingdom in this earth. Interestingly, I am... Um, and reading a commentary that I've been using as we've studied Genesis that was written in 1988. And so when the writer writes what I'm about to read to you, trust me, he's not trying to trigger anyone in this room today. He doesn't have the current debate on his mind when he says this. This commentator is simply trying to be faithful to the text and apply it faithfully to our lives. And so as I read this this week, and consider that it was written decades ago, it is still true today. So I want you to hear this. He said this, The church cannot defeat spiritual wickedness by overthrowing corrupt governments or legislating better laws and ordinances. The conflict is far greater than such efforts and calls for divine power for the victory. This passage, he's speaking about Genesis 14, this passage shows that God is fully able to give his people victory over the world. They must be faithful to obey his word and contend for his cause. Church, the command of Christ today for us is to make disciples among all nations. That is the command. The cause of Christ is to make Christ known. That is why we exist. The Great Commission and that is what we see here as Abram represents and, and, and he is a champion for righteousness. May we too as, as a church champion righteousness in San Antonio and to the ends of the earth by being faithful heralds of the gospel. So as we come to the end of this story, we consider one more time Melchizedek. Again, as I mentioned, he is a type of Christ pointing ahead to the great high priest who is to come. But what we need to understand here is for the original audience, when they read this story about Melchizedek and his role in the story, they did not have the book of Hebrews. They, they did not understand the significance that would come in Melchizedek as this priest in regards to the great high priest, Jesus. And so as the original audience reads this, Melchizedek serves to represent a conflict of interest that is presented to Abraham. And the conflict of interest is this, is he, does he trust in the blessing of the Lord or does he look to receive what is offered to him by a pagan king? Look with me at the final verses in verse 21. It says, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the person, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand, or I have made an oath to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Honor, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. King of Salem, Melchizedek, comes and blesses Abram, and right on the heels of that, the king of Sodom, this wicked king, comes to him and he offers him the entirety of the, the spoils of war minus the people. And so Abram says to him quite bluntly, I have made an oath to the Lord. Notice here how he speaks of God. He speaks of God just as Melchizedek did. 
Verse 19, Melchizedek said, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. How does Abram speak of him? Verse 22, he is God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. These are two men who fear the one true living God. They are servants of the one true living God. They have this common perspective, these two worshipers of Yahweh, that the king of Sodom does not have. And so Abram says to him there, I will not take anything from the spoils of war, but share with those who have come with me, namely the, their honor, Eskel, and Mamre. We also see him giving a portion to Melchizedek. And what we see here is this. Abram was seeking something far more enduring than the spoils of war. Abram was looking for the fulfillment of the promise. Abram was resting in the blessing of God and looking to give God alone glory. He was not looking to receive glory for himself. He was resolved to receive from God a blessing and not the spoils of war from a heathen king. As we come to a close, I want us to consider what we see here. That we must guard our hearts in the midst of God's blessings in this life from seeking attention and renown for ourselves. Abram could have come away from this victory, lifting high the spoils of war and saying, look how great I am. But instead, he lifts high the name of Yahweh. Not seeking to make a name for himself, but to make much of the God in whom he serves. If we are not careful when spiritual blessings come to us in life, we are prone to rob God of the credit and the glory that he deserves for the successes that we find in the Christian life and as the church. And so in this battle that belongs to the Lord, will we be resolved as a church to give him glory when we find success? Over the last several months, we rejoice in the fact that we've seen many people join our church and covenant fellowship together and if you know the history of this church we could say over the last two even three years we have seen this church grow numerically to the praise of God I have said you have said our church is growing and we rejoice in that but if we are not careful under our breaths we might find ourselves also saying look what we have done or maybe we unnecessarily hold on to things for self-preservation. We hold on to the spoils of war for, our, for ourselves and our own glory. You see this with churches that are, are, are old and dying, and they say, in the good old days, this is what I did. In the good old days, this is who we were. And if we're not careful, we will find ourselves looking to the next great thing to keep us on some sort of desired trajectory that we might have and looking to programs and methodologies to bring about an end goal. Dear brothers and sisters, the call of the passage is this. Be faithful to your master. Let God have his way in this church and may he alone receive the glory for what he seeks to do among us. This past week in Laredo, I had the, the privilege of meeting several pastors there, and I met 
our team met a pastor by the name of Pastor Reyes. And Pastor Reyes pastors a, a small church in Laredo. Um, it has struggled. It, it almost died during COVID. There's just a few of them that gather regularly. But we, we found that Pastor Reyes was going out to a plaza there in Laredo every single day to share the gospel with people. And so we actually went out with him on one day, one morning, to walk around the plaza and share the gospel with people. And my encounter in sharing the gospel with people is that many of them had already heard. And it turns out it's because Pastor Reyes had been sharing with all of these people. They had heard the gospel from Pastor Reyes. He also drives a taxi to support his family. And he told me, uh, he said that some of the best gospel conversations you can have are when you're locked in a car with one other person. Here's this pastor in his 60s, small church. He'll never have a book deal. He'll never speak at the convention, but he is faithfully preaching Christ to those around him. And he said this to me. He said, Pastor Nathan, I cannot grow my church. I've tried. I've tried in my own strength to grow my church. All I know to do now is to be faithful to share Jesus with those around me and let God bring the growth. Pastor Reyes is a man who believes that the victory belongs to the Lord. So may we be a church, may we, we, may we be individuals, may we be families who rest in that truth. That God is sovereign and that we would trust in him to have his will. So flee from sin, dear friends, herald righteousness, and give God alone the glory. Let's pray.